Hello, welcome to Q&A 3 uh, with me, Matt and Nomad. Uh, so these are the questions that have been asked in the Patreon um, post and the Discord and various other places at the moment. It seems to be getting quite fragmented where people are asking these. Um, and I have included the ones from the last Q&A which I missed out. So these are all um, ad-libbed. I haven't really written any answers to them prior because I want to just go off the cuff and see what, what sort of arises. Um, so let's jump in. So the first question is, thoughts on the history practice of social clubs, orders, lodges, masons, odd fellows, etc. Um, my thoughts on these really are that they're a rarity and they are one of the few things which seems to be outside our current sort of capitalist paradigm in that they're one of the few analogue places which still allow sort of secretive behavior and I, I think it's sort of telling that um for anything to sort of survive in a in a unique sense of having this external culture which is external to sort of the homogenous culture of consumerism that you have to retain this level of secrecy and um like a level of of commitment and cost and not monetary cost um so with a lot of these historical orders, um, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, some voodoo orders that I know of, they want to make sure, much like sort of serious re religions that are very orthodox and serious, they want to make sure that you're actually serious about your undertaking. And, and usually these have like a year-long or over a year-long probation period. So there's this element from which sort of is clearest in um, George Gurdjieff's work, which is to say that you don't, um, you don't take seriously or respect any knowledge where you haven't given something now to give money is something but it's very easy to pay for something and it's one of the symptoms of western consumerism that in paying for something you you assume that you're going to to get the result which is one of the problems of paying for a meditation course is that this isn't something you can just pay for monetarily and just receive it as like a product so with these you with these orders you you could say, oh, well, the currency is time and life and you'd be subsuming it once again into the capitalist dynamics. Um, but a lot of these is just making sure that people are actually very serious about their studies. So I think they're interesting in that sense. Um, and I think their retention of traditions is, is, is very serious. I mean, many, many of these will take years and years of work. I mean, I think of Crowley's um, AA. Um, that takes years and years of work and he makes it very clear. And it's like John Michael Greer said to me... Um, even, you know, when, when he was first getting into the Metic Order of the Golden Dawn, his uh, tutor sort of said to him that, you know, you, you could still be here 10, 20 years later. And the reason they took John seriously is because that didn't bother him. He would he knew he'd be investigating this stuff anyway. And I think that's what they want. They don't want someone who has this sort of conclusion in mind, um, which seems to be a symptom of consumerism, that you can just, there's going to be this point when you're suddenly... Um, all done and, and enlightened which actually brings on to the the second question which is someone's asked me my thoughts on enlightenment uh, not the historical period but the spiritual sense of the word um i'm fairly skeptical of the idea because once again i think our contemporary idea understanding of what spiritual enlightenment is has sort of been mutated by our understandings of conclusions and purchase um there's the saying that um, there's plenty of ways to to scale a mountain, but the view at the top is the same. 
So the idea, I'm, I'm, I'm always extremely sceptical, and this is one of the reasons I've moved away from Fourth Way and Gurdjieff, is I'm very sceptical of anyone who says that their way is the only way, and I'm actually more open to like a more holistic approach when someone would say that, well, this is one way you could do it, um, but there's plenty of other ways. In terms of whether or not I actually think it's something that's sort of possible and um, is possible in the way that we sort of commonly understand as someone who's attained this sort of spiritual enlightenment which, you know, everything suddenly makes sense to them, I'm relatively sceptical of it um, s simply because it seems to me that the, the idea of it has been, as I say, mutated in a way that I'm not sure we all know what we're entirely talking about when we talk about that. And the idea that you're ever going to really truly be done unless you stick to a really relatively rigorous system which has, you know, clear conclusions isn't something that you find in many ancient traditions who would argue that you, you're always on the path. So Buddhism, Christianity, these, these aren't things that you suddenly stop praying as if you've reached a terminal level of faith. Um, the next question is, someone says, you listed John Michael Greer's Weird of Halley on my recommended reading list. What about these books led to their inclusion and tangential to that? How did you first become acquainted with JMG's writing? Um, so I'll start with the, the second bit there. First, I first came across Greer's writing via Nick Land, who was posting about Arc Druid Report on um, Xeno Systems, about his theorizations and writings on deep time. And from then, I just sort of fell in love with his writings. So that was sort of a couple of years ago now. As for the Weird of Halley... Um, I included them in the list because if you read them, they seem like these sort of um, just relatively pulpy Lovecraftian novels, which are extremely fun. But John has made it clear that these are like his most important works and running throughout them is the current of all his thought from the occultism and collapse and the ecological ideas and his ideas about modernity and how to live a more sort of fulfilling life. And I think if you read between the lines in these books and about what it is the characters are really sort of realising about reality you realise what it is that John's trying to sort of say to us that we're missing in terms of the sort of stale existence of modernity. Um, what are my ambitions, plans for Zedak in terms of writing essays or perhaps even a book? Um, I mean, at the moment, um, I obviously did the interview with JREG um, and I've done the interview with Parallax Optics and I've been talking about zero accelerationism a lot on the the on Twitter. Um and I've also done the course with Matt. So, like, at the moment, I'm sort of accelerationism out. I've sort of accelerated and burnt out because I, I readily admit that I've been sort of saying the same things over and over again. And the amount of new people in the sphere, it's really, really nice. But they often, once again, are sort of struggling with the, the core ideas. And it's quite difficult to sort of get to a point where we have something and go go read this and you'll be up to date because there's so many fragmented ideas. So, like, I don't particularly want to do too much more on zero accelerationism at the moment um largely because i'm writing the nick land book at the moment and that obviously the later sections of that and nick's ideas of machining unconscious um and intelligence and time these are all play into accelerationism so i'm sort of always within that sphere um but accelerationism is sort of fairly i see it as fairly pessimistic generally um and it's something to a certain degree i would like to move away from because it's not personally, I don't personally think it's a great um, personal idea to sort of have and view the world from because it it removes, a, it, 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 it alters a lot of levels of communication 
to the point where you're working with something so abstract that you you can just sort of detach from from life itself and blame everything on some sort of strange entropic other which is not really personally how i um want to see the world um so another question here is what would you consider being the most useful insights in terms of the theory of primitivism from Zerzan? Um, there's there's a few sort of tucked away, but I think you'd be best finding the more useful stuff in writers like Rand Prier, Greer, John Taylor Gatto, Ivan Illich, Ted Kaczynski, even though Kaczynski, to a certain extent, is sort of somewhat sympathetic to primitivism in a certain degree, but obviously he has his famous criticism of it. Um the most useful insights, I think, really are just, once again, the questioning of assumptions with regards to how one lives. So the idea is abhorrent to people because it's so not, in quotation marks, normal. So from primitivism, it, it, the reaction of primitivism to some form of existence outlines a form of normality and modernity that which we've all become so complacent with. The, the, the very idea of primitivism uh, just seems absolutely absurd. And of course, well... As Zerzan and other primitivists make clear, well, in terms of human history, which, you know, the current iteration of evolutionary man is 200,000 years old, roughly. Um, in terms of history, it's only been a blink of the eye when since we've been sort of industrialized. And in, prior to this current iteration of man, we've been living, you know, for the majority of our life as primitivists would. So this is something where I think it's a real questioner of your assumptions with respect to what you consider normal and what you consider normal is basically just what you've been born to born into, which of course you're going to consider that normal, but, um, the understand, you need to have an understanding wherein you need to see where in the cycle you are. Um, and obviously I think that we're nearing the end of certain cycles and entering into something that's not going to be all that great. Um, Three, uh, well, not, not three, but three for this person. What guest would you want to see on your show at the moment that hasn't been on? Um, I mean, obviously, there's tons and tons of guests that I'd like on as people, uh, as, as figures. So um, I would quite like to have Alexander Dugin on, but um, obviously there's the risk of sort of cancellation via that and YouTube being very funny about his name. Um, I'd love to have Zizek on, um, but he's quite hard to contact. Um, but the bigger thing for me is actually finding people who know about more obscure figures. So I've got the the episodes on Thomas Carlyle, and I recently, just yesterday, had the, the one released on Choron, and the one on Junger on Tuesday. And I've got one coming up on Joseph Demest. And for me, the bigger thing is finding people who are, who are who's scholars in these ex extremely um, niche figures, because that's what's more important to me than having someone on who's really well known is actually finding someone who can help other people out in terms of accessibility when they they're very interested in a figure but don't really know where to start and would like a foothold and that's what a lot of my conversations I think are doing is saying well you've obviously heard of this figure but you you, you know here's an episode which will give you the the grounding and and one of the interesting things when I email a lot of these scholars um is that they're really really excited not for the fact that they get to talk about, obviously, the, the, the figures that many of them have worked their entire lives on, but because they, they're they extremely surprised in the fact that, that, in a popular sense, it's just a, a, a public podcast. People are genuinely interested on a sincere level just to listen um, and learn about these figures in a non-academic sense. Um, 
so in, as far as guests go, I mean, one guest which would be an absolute dream, but it would never, never, never happen, would actually be Ted Kaczynski, who I think had a an interview sort of years ago, which has been sort of edited and haggard on YouTube. You can find it. But that's never going to happen. But in terms of like, you know, there's a 0.0001% chance it ever could if somehow I could organise that. But I just don't think it would ever happen. Um, do you think that occultism and esoteric religious traditions ever can become mainstream or widely widely adopted? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, of course they can. Um, to a certain extent, I think at a certain point in history, Christianity would be, would have been understood as a sort of an esoteric tradition um, when it was still battling with the mainstream view of paganism. Um, and to a certain and at certain points in time, Druid we, Druidry would have been mainstream religions. And at a certain point in time, Thelema was relatively mainstream. Um, a lot of these things, it's just fashions and cycles. Um, so, with respect to to what can become mainstream, it's just more to do with what's fashionable at the time. Um, and I'm not saying anything about any certain religions or, or esoteric traditions in this sense. But to think on the level of deep time is extremely important. And what, and what I mean by that is don't sort of get caught up in your present and assuming that everything the way it's currently is is the way it's always been. What's mainstream now wasn't always mainstream and what's small now won't always be small. I mean, the the, the, the Church of Satan is a clear example that's becoming more and more popular. Uh, things fade and, and things go. Um, and in, in terms of what one considers the, tr- the true religion or the true belief to be, that is... Um, their personal choice um and the idea of something occult occultism i mean obviously it just means hidden so the idea of that becoming mainstream is is a worry in itself the idea of that the the point of it being hidden was that you need certain knowledge and certain preparation to be ready to be able to deal with it so in terms of it becoming mainstream it's a bit worrying and we're seeing more and more um esoteric tv shows include a lot of uh, occult and esoteric themes and symbols and ideas which you, I don't really think that should be becoming mainstream in that way because they're being used sort of callously um, and without care. If I had the possibility to change the future of humanity as I see it, would you do it? If so, what future would you ideally like for us? Maybe we'll come up with more questions, but these are the ones. Okay. Um, if I had the possibility to change the future of humanity, uh, would I do it? No, uh, because what I want isn't what everyone else wants. Um, and, and what I want isn't actually very much. I just want a contentful life with a family, which is actually fairly quiet and calm. Um, what future would I ideally like for us is... I mean, obviously, this is a question I've thought about. Um, and, and the future that I'd ideally like for everyone is the one in which they can all have their future, which is, of course, an extremely difficult thing to attend to. Um, in fact, I was reading Ted Kaczynski's uh, second book and probably last book, um, uh, why and how um and he goes on about how dictatorships absolute rulers um anyone who's in charge if you look at the history of even the bigger figures such as hitler mussolini um and multiple kings who really tried to to rule in the sense of projecting their own subjective vision um over the entire you'll find that basically none of them actually had the power that you thought they had um, the clearest example is Hitler, you know, the amount of assassination attempts on his life and his understanding that if he was going to 
um, get rid of the military because many of the generals were actually against him and didn't agree with him and wanted him out. Uh, if he was going to get rid of the military, then he'd no longer have a competent military. And to get rid of that would then, you know, he'd lose a lot of his um, militaristic edge, which is the problem Stalin had. And he, Stalin went one way in getting rid of it, too much to his detriment. And Hitler went the other way and sort of somewhat paid off until he was beaten by the Allies. But the point is that a lot of what you consider to be power um, really is in the hands of multiple, multiple, multiple thousands upon thousands of sort of almost indiscernible civil servants, bureaucrats, businessmen, and much of your energy expenditure when in power goes to trying to get these people round to your way of thinking. So in terms of changing the world to the way you want it, really I would just once again say go inward and focus on yourself because that's all you're really going to be able to do. Of course, that's a sort of a cheap truism. Um, but I would just want the future where everyone has the freedom to be able to do what they do without harming others and and uh, creating sort of obnoxious property type rights. Um, so, yeah, but I don't really have uh, a sort of change the world idea because I don't think that's really ever possible. Um, yeah. Do I think philosophy should be obligatory course in school? If so, how would you organise it and teach it if it was up to you to decide? Uh, no, I don't actually. I don't think anything should be obligatory in that sense. My personal thoughts towards schooling are that it should be more along Illich's idea of what people organically and naturally gravitate towards. They then coalesce in groups and, and, and sort of autodidactically learn within these these organically formed groups as opposed to a sort of forced thing there's obviously this idea that everyone should be taught philosophy as a way to you know live a, a better life and a more fulfilling life and a more moral life but of course there's a question then of in what sense are you teaching philosophy and which philosophers are you teaching and what philosophies are you teaching because you're of course going to get biases um and, and excluding certain philosophers including others is already uh trying to shape the minds towards a certain idea of what the world is like um, so really my, my gripe with that is any obligation. Um, I, I'm fairly against the education system as it is now. Um, uh, but I do think it should play a bigger part in society again. I mean, there used to be, it's only relatively recently, um, I would personally argue it was actually the, the famous Bergson-Einstein moment, uh, post that moment when Bergson and Einstein had a debate about time, and Bergson, Henri Bergson, the philosopher, sort of famously lost quite badly. It seems to be since then that the the detachment from science, from philosophy, became fairly absolute. And they no longer, scientists no longer took what philosophers were saying seriously, but philosophers still took scientists seriously. Prior to this, of course, everyone sort of seems to have learnt from each other. And you look at any... Um, what we now can many of what we now consider to be philosophers i mean the two most famous examples are descartes and leibniz if we if they were to be born now and to theorize on what they were philosophically theorizing on now they would be considered more in the line of mathematicians and scientists than they are philosophers and i think that's more what's important is the idea of philosophy entering into other subjects um Thoughts on Terence McKenna, Tim Leary, Robert Anton Wilson and their role in the psychedelic countercultural revolution, mysticism, futurism, novelty theory and the cyber technosis. Um, OK, I've got to sort of go through them one by one. Terence McKenna is one of these um, psychedelic anomalies. Um, so really, 
the the thinkers and theorists of like psychedelic culture who've come to interesting conclusions or have perhaps written interesting things from their drug journeys. Um, I'm thinking William S. Burroughs, Terence McKenna, as you've stated, um, Robert Anton Wilson to a certain extent, Philip K. Dick, um, Burroughs, I think I already said, the uh, Nick Land. Um, these are outliers, and and actually my my sort of argument and trajectory of this thought goes. Really, I would argue that these were smart people anyway, and perhaps without the drug use, um, they they would have come to the same conclusions, perhaps they wouldn't. But I'm relatively, actually, I'm fairly strictly anti-drugs. Um, um, as most of you know, I don't drink or even drink caffeine. Um, you know, I'm fairly uh, teetotal when it comes to these things, um, just because I don't really enjoy that culture and it's not something that's ever resonated with me and I've I rarely meet the average drug user who's saying any prophetic things and it seems to me that a lot of the people who have you know trips where they sort of everything comes into play is that really they'd primed their mind for some idea that they're going to have a revelation before the trip so, you know, there's a thing of sort of priming your mind before an acid trip. I mean, I've never done it, so I don't under truly understand. So I could just be uh, making this up. But as I understand it, this is the sort of big preparation. You prepare the atmosphere. So you 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 <clears throat> target yourself towards a certain trip. And I think subconsciously you're priming yourself for this idea. So I think a lot of people actually um, take acid with the idea that it is going to give them some revelatory epiphantic experience and from that then that then happens um so this is sort of my problem with a lot of this stuff is that it's sort of assumed to be like that anyway and it seems that a lot of people who've come to these conclusions they seem to be relatively unstable conclusions now this is the one of the big problems for me is almost like a Kantian thing again is that if you're investigating the world to try reveal something about it to yourself or to try and find some kernel of truth or kernel of knowledge to work with, attend to that from the most stable foundation you can. Um, otherwise, what can you say of the conclusions that you come to? Now, of course, this is the Kanti idea, is the conditions of experience. Now, Kant sort of outlines the conditions of our experience relatively st strictly in the sense that we have we 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 exist in this subjective um spatio temporality of course if you're then altering that spatio temporality you're just entering into another layer of the same problem um without firmer grasp on the foundation so if you then take drugs within that firstly you're probably miles away and can't really have too much control of your mind because you're in this trip and also you're on another like you've doubled up on the confusion of your subjective reality so i just think that trying to attend to any truth from that is a bit of a difficult thing and i think it's more important as to what the mystical experiences which attend to you from the the commonplace spatio-temporality that we exist within and jung is great on this you know um Junger, of course later on in his life was one of the first people with Albert Hoffman to, to have to take LSD and understand that but that was way later but of course during the war he understands that mysticism returns to you you don't return to it it's not something you can seek out like that there is sort of an ancient underlying mysticism which arises in moments of complete sort of ego stress in the sense that you're pushing limits 
And I think to push those limits artificially is also to give an artificial outcome with regards to what you can discern from the knowledge that you're given from them. Um, I don't know too much about Timothy Leary. I think Robert Anton Wilson's Prometheus Rising is a brilliant book and a great starting place for anyone who's like sceptical on uh, what we would consider occultism. Um, but once again, for me, the, for me, one of the things that I take very seriously is um, not so much the biography, but the state of the person's life who's telling me X, Y and Z. Um, so when I look at Ernst Jünger in terms of just his appearance and how he composed himself, that's someone whose advice in life I would have would take because his life is extremely stable and he's got it together and yet he's still able to do these things. Terence McKenna, on the other hand, is sort of a bearded hippie in the middle of nowhere, taking shrooms and hardly eating anything. Um, and I don't know, I don't know too much about Timothy Leary at all, so I'm not going to comment. Robert Anton Wilson seems to be sort of miles away most of the time. Um, so these aren't people who would, who would say, well, if why should I take your advice if taking your advice has led you to this position? Um, and actually, like, this is going to annoy a lot of people, but this is actually one of the same reasons that I'm very sceptical of Marx, is because that his life was an absolute mess. Uh, so in in a certain way there, I am more akin to the Jordan Peterson thing of uh, tidy your room before you save the world, because, yeah, why would I take the advice of someone who can't get their own life together first. Um, I think there is a certain amount of sort of uh, projection coming across in, 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 in an idea of responsibility there. Um, what currently alive philosophers do you think are the most important, excluding land? Um, well, last year I would have, of course, included Michel Serre in this. Um, so unfortunately he's passed away. But as that was very, very recently, I would have in I would sort of include him. Um, yes, of course, I would include land. Um, I would actually say Yarvin and Curtis Yarvin mentioned Marlberg in terms of contemporary political theory, because I think he's, he's genuinely doing some really, really great stuff. Um, as for others, there really isn't too many for me that stand out as doing legitimately interesting philosophical work, but I'm fairly picky um, and I just the, the 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 culture and the atmosphere of the academy is so suffocating that people seem to want to explain themselves before explain themselves via other philosophers before they actually do anything. And, and perhaps I'm out of the loop, but there's not too much philosophizing going on. I mean, there is the big figures that I, you know, you could obviously comment on. Um, Slavoj Žižek is obviously one of the arguably sort of the most well-known and biggest philosopher going. And I don't think his work's really going to stand the test of time because he's so reliant on two other thinkers who, when one reads their work, Lacan and Hegel, obviously, they can sort of come to the conclusions that Zizek is coming to via the, the primary reading. Zizek is obviously interesting and he takes in interesting directions. Um, Elaine Badiou, of course, is one that's there also, but I don't know Badiou's work all that well, so I wouldn't comment on that. But outside of that, there's... I mean... Personally, I would put John Michael Greer in there. I think he's he's probably one of the smartest people alive. As for considering him a philosopher, perhaps not. He's more of a theorist, but I would put him in there. Um, have I ever been to Catholic Latin Mass, High Church Anglican service, and or Orthodox Divine Liturgy? If so, what are your thoughts? If not, would you like to? Um, I haven't, 
actually I haven't been to any of these. I'm sort of gearing myself up to go to uh, Orthodox uh, Eucharist very soon. Uh, that's something I'm leaning towards. It's the Orthodox Church. Um, and the, the, the only reason I haven't is I want to be fully sure that it isn't a LARP and I want to be stable in my decision and I'm not just getting caught up in some sort of faux traditionalism. But since reading a lot of the stuff I have over the past few years, the move towards some form of foundational belief system and having a leap of faith. And actually my recent readings of Seraphim Rose, C.S. Lewis um, and various other Christian uh, apologetics has sort of solidified the idea that we really do need that sort of thing. And it has actually, it has actually um, uh, contributed to my sort of boredom of Nietzsche. And I think a lot, some of that is because Nietzsche is always included in the Hermetics question for basically every person who comes on. And that's understandable. He's an interesting figure. But I have become be, begun to actually dislike Nietzsche and get very bored by him, in part because of this, but in part because he is narcissistic. And I I, th I feel that Seraphim Rose's critique of him in that many of his, well, all of his writings scorning religion is actually more of a cry out for God deeper than anyone else. Um, and his criticisms of Thomas Carlyle with respect to his idea that Carlyle just retreats to Christianity, even though he's not certain of it, but he retreats to it in a comfort. And that's why he disliked him. I actually find a serious strength in Carlyle for doing that. Whereas Nietzsche obviously took the trajectory the other way and just succumbed to the absolute nihilism of it all. And I would re highly recommend Seraphim Rose's book, um, Nihilism, uh, the contemporary root of the revolution in modernity on this. Um, it's extremely short. Seraphim Rose is an amazing writer and it's one of the best critiques of Nietzsche. And also Seraphim Rose doesn't feel the need to constantly back up all his claims with you know, footnotes and digressions on certain thinkers as if he's trying to prove himself through other thinkers. And I think it's great work for that reason. Um, someone's asked a sort of an abstract question. When you say thoughts, what exactly do you mean? What am I looking for? What would interest you? Uh, I don't know how serious they were with this. Um, when I say thoughts, I just mean thinking and understanding. What am I looking for? A contentful life. What would interest me? Just continued investigation into life and finding a firm foundation from which to be contentful. Do I believe there is any meaning outside of human context? Um, that's a paradox of a question because I'm never going to be able to get outside of human context, even if you could prove that one could attend to something which was outside of a human context, you would still be attending to that thing from a human context, which by its connection and communication to you is already being changed by it being can um communicated to you and you're communicating with it from a human context so when we begin to think of meaning even if we began to think of um meaning outside of human context we're theorizing of meaning outside of human context from a human context and this is sort of a recur recursion that i don't like to enter into anymore because i don't think it goes anywhere and it's one of my big criticisms with accelerationism is is the the impossibility of truly knowing whether or not you know the new menal and one of the sort of the landian uh, current of accelerationism doesn't seem to take many of Kant's theorizations with respect to actually having objective knowledge of the new menal um, that seriously, because there is a lot of stuff um, in the, especially in the analytic and the, the the dialectic that do 
attend to this idea that we actually have more uh, objective knowledge of the noumenal than we think we do. Um, but it seems that the two forms that are most pertinent in accelerationist theory are geometry and mathematics, or just you could circle around that and call it mathematics. And that's perhaps what we can consider um, some... If you were to begin to understand a meaning outside of human context, I, th- I believe you would have to begin from mathematics. But you are beginning from uh, phenomenal notational mathematics of the inside, and then you're converting that via uh, sensibility. Uh, it's the idea of going from metric to diagrammatic again. So uh, do I believe there is any meaning? I could believe there is. Um, I mean, I believe in God, but that's a God which is in relation to um, human understandings of God. Um, so it's just a paradox of a question, really. Um, has my Deluso-Landian understanding of humanity being assemblages of machinic couplings being puppeteered by forces from the outside to bring about capital expansion impacted your feelings on bringing children into the world? Um, you know, this is one of the things I think people always find very strange about land. I want to comment on this too much. Um, but, but the fact he has kids, I think, is very, um, bemusing to people. And they, they wonder why that from such a nihilistic philosophy you would still bring children into the world now um my understanding of land with respect to Deleuze as well because it's always there I've come to realize in recent weeks since sort of finishing the first draft of this land book is that I'm always in conversation with Michel Serre um which is something that took me a long time to realize now Michel Serre's philosophy of communication is becoming more and more important to me in the sense that when you say Deleuze has a Deleuze-Landian understanding of the world sort of affected my understanding of what I should do in the world, that in terms of Michel Serre's theorizations of communication would be me attending to the entire world from one level of communication. Now, of course, it's very easy to give up everything and to say it's all this machinic assemblage, it's all this unconscious machinations and we're just this sort of puppeteered flesh puppet uh, in the middle of a, in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the machine, there's no getting out. And any decision that I do make, whether it's to, you know, buy a washing machine or to have children, is caught up in um, Deleuzean philosophy of production, right? These are all m- modes of production and consumption. It's very easy to do that. But I actually lean more towards the, the, the Sersian argument that by subsuming everything onto that level, you're subsuming everything onto one level of communication. And there's multiple levels of communication, which we could almost think of in, of it as quite controversial, but as intensities of incu- communication. So the example that we've I've given twice in the Michel Serre series is that when you think of love, you do get these people who, who usually um, bitter about a breakup or the fact they can't find anyone say, well, what does it matter anyway? Love is just... Um, Love is just chemical communications in the body. You know, it's atoms moving. And that's one level of communication. But when you fall in love with someone as a human, that's a completely different level of communication. And whether or not one affects the other is important. And that's its own level of communication and understanding. But separately, both these levels of communication are are communicating completely separate things, which you can't then subsume onto the other level of communication. So on one level of communication you can say by having children you are producing these these agents of capital capital who are going to 
grow and mature into greater agents of production, right? And that's one level of communication. But on another level of communication, you can still understand yourself as a human who, within a certain level of communication, is going to have children who are going to bring them a more fulfilling life and bring them lots of love and joy into the world. And I don't personally, though many people would probably disagree, I don't think it's these are actually incompatible. They're simply levels of separate levels of communication. Um, as for whether or not I want to bring children into the world, yes, I do, um, because the 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 sort of relatively recent there's two sort of there's two sort of strains of this, but the relatively recent covert undercurrent of antinatalism, which seems to be running throughout young people, I find extremely abhorrent. Actually, so one level of this is the sort of the transhumanist argument that that, that we can sort of design children and everything's going to be grown in vats or, or it's all going to be virtual in a certain sense. I find that horrible and against nature. And the other level is the idea that because the world's not going so great that we shouldn't bring children into it. Now that argument, my main problem with that argument is that you're attending to that argument from a theorization of modernity you don't realise you're attending to, right? So by saying, oh, the world's really bad, you know, we, no one can sort of ignore the fact that the economy's going to crap, the res- there's going to be resource problems, um, many, many funda- fundamental traditional values are being stripped away minute to minute, and the, 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 the data economy's accelerating and at just an unforeseen pace, and people's minds are getting fried for attention span. Now, that idea is to say that you, it would be an ethical decision to bring your children into the world if it wasn't like this. That theory is attending to an idea that there is ever a normal state of reality in the world and of existence, as if there is a certain point you go, right, the world's good, let's bring children into it now. Well, the world works in cycles and there's nothing new under the sun, so there's not going to be some certain point where you can go, right, now's a really good time to bring children into the world because, you know, or not to sound too edgy, but there's always suffering and there's always pain. They're parts of life. So attending to the idea that you shouldn't bring children into the world because the world is bad, well, you're never going to have a point when you should bring children into the world because you've, you're have you believing in the idea that modernity can get rid of all of that, and it, it apparently did. What doesn't help us here is that since sort of... Um, post-war western world has been um even though i don't like his philosophy all that much a hegelian anomaly um and what i mean by that is to say that there's this point where hegel is quoted of saying you know welcome back to history and this is how i feel with coronavirus and much of what's going on now and we're noticing these big changes in history is that welcome back to history things change and there is big things that happen we're not immune to history but we seem to have had this sort of democratic immunity to it for the last sort of 80 years. And obviously, you know, there's the, the, the infamous um, end of history book. You know, now everything's this democratic, idyllic um, idea of what a world should be. And we finally exited the horrible change of wars and violence, etc., etc. Well, we haven't changed that and we're going back into it. And to say not to bring, you shouldn't bring a child into the world because it's because everything's machinized and awful and, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff is just to say that you 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 wouldn't put the effort into trying to help your child find a footing in the world even though the world's always going to be um the world's never going to be perfect so the people who have this idea that they shouldn't bring them child- their children into the world because it's bad are basically just uh, uh they have faith in progress and they've believed progress has gone wrong and if it hadn't they should have brought children to the world well that's not how it works um so yeah 
On the deepest level you are aware of, feel comfortable talking about, what motivated your interest in philosophy initially and has this changed over time? Um, so my trajectory with philosophy I can sort of put down to a few thinkers who have been my uh, reading obsessions over the years. So when I was around 15, 16, I was obsessed with Kurt Vonnegut, um, who's the subtle philosophical notions in his work. And I think I found a lot of hope in his work at that age. Um, from there, I moved to um, Albert Camus, uh, who's you know a relatively accessible philosopher and sort of got subsumed into the absurdist vision of the world for a while. Uh, that was probably 1718. Um, for some reason, then I moved, I had a long Christopher Hitchens phase and a new atheism phase. Uh, probably around the same time, actually. And then that's when I started university and did the fine art degree and realised that I'm not all that good at making art and creating, mainly because I'm too lazy to do it. And it takes a lot of work to be an artist for very little pay. And I realised I was better at the theory. And then from then I did the... the uh, I was just reading a lot of philosophy in terms of my artwork and my theorizations of what art was and realised that I was far more interested in that and went on to do Constance of Philosophy. Um, what motivated the interest, I guess, is no one can truly ever say it's something sort of almost organically innate in you that you just strive to... You're not fully satisfied with your understanding of the world as it is and you've, you know, you've always had this... Hmm, uh, well, that's strange. And I think, you know, Alan Watts starts one of his books with the idea of being in the world is weird. And I think for many people it isn't. For many people they're very, very comfortable with just like this is... And I think I'm almost envious of this view, by the way, the idea that they just, they don't actually investigate life. And of course, you know, oh, the, the, the unexamined life isn't worth living. But the unexamined life is worth living because it isn't examined, because these people are so, so contentful. And I don't think you can just say that they're all sheep. I've met many, many people who are just content and happy with the... with the, and, and it's not that they've accepted, because to accept something, you have to know the alternatives, right? To To accept that this life is as it is and couldn't be any other way, you would have have to have investigated the other options. So this isn't an acceptance, it's just... Uh, 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 like an a priori contentfulness with the world and to a certain degree I'm envious of that but of course you um, you get this uh, little niggling thought that you need to investigate things in certain days two days a week it's regrettable three days a week it's you know bearable and then the others it's actually quite fun um, but, but I would be lying to say that there isn't days when I wish that I had never gone down the path of philosophy and I think you'd be hard pressed to find a philosopher who doesn't because on on you know, a lot of the time you want to just be content with life, um, which is why I've been more, I've been drawn more towards Sayre and Klagers and people who are philosophizing on ways to understand your immediate reality in interesting new ways, as opposed to like, you know, cracking it wide open and destroying values and deconstructing everything, which I just, I've always found very sinister and abhorrent. Um, how do I deal with the routine of having intensified hermetics this year? Yeah, so, um, you know, this is a nice question, actually. So, with respect to hermetics, many of you will know I work 8am to 5pm um, every day. So, nine hours a day, usually till 6pm, actually, because that's when my girlfriend gets home from work, so I just work till she gets back. So, usually around um, roughly nine, ten hours a day, um, I work on hermetics. My average day is sort of, um, I write the blog post in the morning till about 10. Then I'll edit an interview. 
till 12. Um, and then I will do various reading and then whatever interviews I have will be booked into this. Um, and there's other bits and pieces. Now, how I've dealt with it is just to keep extremely, extremely organised to the point where my day is uh, put into sections of six, uh, the Iron Laws of Six, which I actually put a screenshot of my um, organisational calendar in the, the Discord for anyone who's interested in that. It's just to keep extremely organised and not get distracted. And to do things in these small blocks works very, very well for me. Um, I am actually at the point where like, I have enough work. Many of you will know that I actually have enough interviews edited and scheduled, like as in they're all uploaded and scheduled to, for the start of November. And I actually have four more not edited and produced. So I basically have interviews till the end of the year now. Um, which is why some weeks I'm going to be releasing two because this isn't exactly needed. But if you think about it in this way, this does give me a huge buffer to, to, to produce other content. If something goes awry, if an interview gets cancelled, it gives me a buffer and it's a very comfortable buffer. But it also means I could produce, you know, special episodes for Christmas and things along these lines. So, you know, that's going on. But, uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm working on the land book and I'm working on the new lecture series, which will be out sort of released once I've sort of figured out the, the details of the land book. I'm still slowly working on the transcriptions, but that's really not a priority. Um, and I obviously I did offer that as a Patreon um, um, reward, and it will come eventually. But just to know, once the land book is released, um, because I offered the book of transcriptions, everyone who is um, a five dollar patron or who was a patron will get a, a, a free ebook of the land book because you know that's that's fair. It's fair. Um, but but in all honesty, I'm at the point where if I had the money, I would pay, you know, for a virtual assistant because there's that much of a workload. Um, Hermetics is now in the past month, it's kicked into the second gear of expansion. So I was sort of on YouTube and Twitter, you know, the few months since I started averaging sort of 200 to 300 subscribers a month. And now it's sort of hitting... 400 to 500 and obviously that's exponential it just keeps growing bigger and bigger and more and bigger people are seeing it and the views uh, the, the the videos are getting consistently more views week in week out and basically i'm not really going to change much the only things i've actually the only things i consistently look into with respect to what i'm producing is how can i actually cut away more so one thing i'm thinking of doing is obviously at the start of each video i say something along the line of this week i'm joined by blah 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 and I've actually realised that that's fairly superfluous because the the start of any interview is me saying, I'm joined by this person, let me, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm actually repeating myself. So I think soon I'm going to remove the introduction and just say, if you want to support me on Patreon, please do, because it's not needed. So I'm less, I, I, my, my, my argument for what makes actually a good business is less, um, less is more. And any business or private idea, company that's changed things over the years is usually destroys themselves by doing so if you have a working product just look at refining that working model and don't um don't you know overcomplicate it which is not what i want to do and so many so many podcasts are just filled with utter crap it's so frustrating like i go people link me things and they've got a two minute i mean i've gone about on about this before i know but They've got a two-minute sort of dubstep intro, and then they are on about subscribing, adverts, subscriptions, blah, blah, blah. And that is not my ethos. It never has been, and I think it's an awful ethos because it's very clear to the viewer and the listener 
what your agenda is. Your agenda is not the content. You're using that content to get something else. Now, of course, of course, I'm not going to deny that my content brings me my income now. But the content comes first. There won't ever be ads. And I made sure there was some recent comments on the video saying, oh, my God, you know, can you chill down on the adverts? And every time I've done adverts on YouTube, I go to the advert section. I unclick non-skippable ads. And basically what happened was there was for a long time, there was only adverts pre-roll. So that's at the start. And I always made and, and what happened was YouTube sort of upgraded how well I can monetize things. And they made it so I was allowed to have mid-roll, which is when there's like adverts every 10 minutes or even five minutes, right? I didn't choose. To, they just automatically applied that to all my videos. Um, and basically, I was not very happy about it, but I've gone through and unclicked them all. Um, but but it seems recently they might have actually removed the possibility for adverts on my videos anyway. YouTube isn't my biggest thing anyway, so it doesn't matter to me. Um, let's see what else is going on with regards to intensified medics. So the plan is to get the land book out within sort of two months, uh, which is going to be a push, but I like the pressure, uh, to give yourself deadlines. It's definitely what I definitely want the fucking thing out before Christmas because it's been, been sort of just on a weight on my shoulders for like three years now. Then I'm going to release the lecture series once the land book's being finalized, which is the continental current of which sort of the critique of pure reason is all written and many of it's much of it's recorded. Um, and then after that, one of the really big plans I have for sort of next year is actually to crowdfund a video documentary. Um, the two ideas I have, one is to travel around the UK and interview people who've sort of exited people such as Mark Boyle, um, who many of you will know, I've recommended his book, the way home who's living in, in Ireland in a sort of um, I don't want to say shack because that sounds harsh but uh, a shack and he's living without any modern technology and I'd like to find out other people who are living these alternative lifestyles go interview them out do a video documentary and the other idea is to interview modern modern occultists and actually do a documentary about the state of modern occultism and what's going on there um, but one thing I'd like to reiterate with respect to like my content and what Medics is is just to remember that I would even if Patreon suddenly stopped tomorrow, which I, I really hope it doesn't, and if you if you if you love the content please support because it just means I can do bigger things and don't have to worry about this all so much. One thing I would say though is that if that all stopped, yeah I would produce less, but I would still produce Medics because it's what I love doing and anyone who's followed from the start knows that I almost did it for three years for free as a hobby not for any monetary payment or any like reward other than I just wanted to talk to these people because I love their ideas um so yeah but uh, how I've dealt with a routine of intensified I mean I've loved it really um yeah absolutely loved it um and you know I'm extremely thankful to be in this position where I can do this um you know it's sort of the dream in a way and I hope a lot of this stuff is is helping people out um but yeah, thanks for listening. Um, and there'll be another Q&A in uh, probably a month or two months. So yeah, thanks.